please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're in verse 1. We're continuing with the book of Hebrews. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Hebrews. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of rest that you provide through the sacrifice of Christ. We pray tonight to the depths of our soul that we could know that rest, that we could enter into that rest. We thank you for the power of your word, the the way that it cuts and divides and does surgery in our lives. And we want to enter into that as well. We want to submit ourselves to your word. Jesus, we thank you that you are our high priest and that we can enter into the throne room. Right now we're in your throne room because of your grace. We ask for help. You know exactly where we need help in our lives. God, would you minister to each person? Lord, you know where we're being tempted and you know where we're struggling. You know where we're rejoicing. Would you do your work in our lives? Pray you'd really bless children's ministry tonight, youth ministry, everything that's taking place here. In Jesus' name, amen. It's one thing to know that something is good and it's another to enter into it. Like you can know of a really good coffee shop, that's one thing, and it's another thing to go sit down and enjoy a really good cup of coffee, isn't it? It's one thing to know about driving. You can talk to someone about driving, you could probably read about driving, but it's another thing to enter in and to actually drive. And the encouragement in Hebrews chapter 4 is this, to enter in, to enter in, in three areas. The first is to enter into his rest. There's a rest that remains for us to be able to enter into. The example is the children of Israel in the promised land. We have one generation that entered into the promised land through faith and one generation that did not. And we're encouraged to enter in through faith. And then we're encouraged to enter into surgery. No one ever likes to enter into surgery. But sometimes it's necessary. Maybe you've had that experience in your life. You, you broke a bone, you tore a ligament, and they said the only way to properly repair this is through surgery. Maybe you've had cancer, and in order to remove that cancer, you've got to have surgery. Never fun, but sometimes worthwhile, and God wants to do surgery on our hearts through his word. He wants to use his word into our lives, and it's one thing to know about the power of the word, isn't it? to hear people express the power of the word. But it's another thing to experience, to enter into the power of God's word. It's said that this book will keep you from sin. Isn't that true? God's word will keep us from sin. But sin will keep us from this book, won't it? Or sometimes, if we're honest, we don't want to open up God's word. We don't want to go to God's surgery room because we know it's going to hurt. But God wants us to, to enter into that And then finally, to enter into his throne room. We're invited by our sympathetic, compassionate, gracious high priest, Jesus Christ, right into the throne room of the Father to ask for grace and strength for help in time of need. This is a great chapter. It's very powerful and practical. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. If you remember back a few weeks ago to chapter 3, we have the illustration of the generation that was delivered from Egypt, wandered in the wilderness, came to the promised land, 
but lacked faith to enter into God's promises, lacked faith to enter into God's rest. And because of it, they wandered and died in the wilderness. The next generation, led by Joshua, enters into God's promise. So we're reminded of them, and then this challenge is given to us. In light of that truth, since a promise remains of entering into his rest. The beautiful thing about the Old Testament is it's Old Testament pictures of New Testament truths. The promised land points to the promises that we have in Jesus Christ, the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. And we can enter into rest just like the children of Israel entered into the promised land. But definitely from verse 1, absolutely, there is a, a rest that remains. There's a promise of rest. The question is, Am I entering into that rest that has been provided by Jesus Christ? There's a warning here. It says, let us fear, let us beware that we're not entering into the rest that Christ has provided. Those that died in the wilderness, were they still God's children? Absolutely. Did they experience God's best? Absolutely not. (laughs) If we don't enter into God's rest, are we still his children? Yes, if we trust Christ for salvation. But are we entering into his best? No. And so tonight, am I entering into all that God has provided for me through faith and through faith and experiencing that abiding rest? Rest and peace are hard to come by, aren't they? Sometimes we look for rest and we look for peace in our possessions, in homes, in cars, in money. But oftentimes we have to ask the question, do I own my house or does my house own me? Do I own my car or does my car own me? If I'm looking to it in and of itself apart from Christ to satisfy, it doesn't bring rest and peace. Sometimes it's position, it's recognition, it's security in life. If I just had this position, then then I would have rest and peace. But how secure are those positions in this life? They come and they go. They can't fulfill, they can't provide the rest and peace that we long for. Sometimes... We're looking for rest and pleasure, aren't we? If I could have this experience, you know, this time of year when it's this cold in Colorado, we begin to think of some tropical locations, don't we? I think that sitting on that beach would provide some rest and, and peace. Is there anything wrong with a vacation? No. But if we're looking for that to provide the, the rest and peace in our lives... Oftentimes I find myself thinking this way. You probably do as well. Well, once I get to here, I'll have some rest and peace. This is just a season. Do you ever find yourself saying that? And then you realize this season really is a lifestyle. I'm going from one thing to the next, and I'm all worked up inside, and I'm not truly experiencing rest and peace. There, there remains rest for us to enter into. Augustine said this, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee. Paraphrase, you move us to praise you. For thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. So I'm going to be restless until I find my rest in Christ, till I enter into this promise that is given. So this is point number one for us tonight, is enter into his rest. These first 11 verses give us that exhortation. We're going to find the example from creation. There's rest in creation. There's rest in the Sabbath. 
There's rest in the promised land. So three illustrations of rest, and they're all pointing to the rest that now can be had in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Verse 2 declares the gospel was preached to us, and also the gospel was preached to this generation in the wilderness. The gospel did not enter into the heart and mind of God when Jesus died upon the cross. The gospel's always been in the heart and mind of God. It was God's plan to send his son. God knew that Adam and Eve would fall. So the father was preaching the gospel to the children of Israel in the wilderness. In what way? Well, we know with the serpent, as they were complaining, snakes were sent to to bite them and were killing the children of Israel. Moses cries out to God, what did God tell him to do? Lift up a bronze serpent. And everybody that looked to that bronze serpent, ultimately looking to the Lord, was healed. Jesus said that that serpent represented him, that he was going to be lifted up like that bronze snake. He who knew no sin was becoming sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Manna from heaven every day. Jesus came on the scene and what did he say? I am the bread of life. I am the manna that's provided from heaven. The rock provided water. We know from Paul's writing to the Corinthians church that that rock pointed to Jesus Christ. He's the rock that provided living water. So the gospel was preached to that generation. The hope of of Jesus Christ was preached to them, but it didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. Now that's a scary place to be in, isn't it? That the word of God could be heard, could be spoken into our lives, could be read, but profits us nothing because it wasn't mixed with faith. We've all had that experience in school, haven't we? You were in that Algebra 1 class. I was in that Algebra 1 class. I was in that French 1 class and French 2 class. I can honestly say it profited me nothing because I wasn't paying attention, right? I had no, I, no, no desire to learn French. I just were part of what was needed to, to graduate. We can easily be in a, in a setting where we're hearing things and it's not profiting us, but in God's economy, the way things work for the Lord is the way for the word of God to not profit us if it's not mixed with faith, if we don't trust it, if we don't believe it, if we don't, we don't trust that it's the, the word of God. Satan knows that, And so he's always trying to put doubt when it comes to to the word of God. That's where the real battle is. Do I trust the word? When I'm hearing the word, is it mixed with faith? Simple things. Things like Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. For those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Not good from my perspective, but good from God's perspective for his glory. And do I trust that? Is it mixed with faith? They go, yeah, that's true. I, I believe that. And that's what was lacking in this generation that perished in the wilderness. In verse 3, For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said. So what's the key to entering into rest? What's the key to entering into the promised land that God has provided, the rest that's in Jesus Christ? It's faith. It's trust. Verse 3 again. Let's read it again. For we who have believed do 
enter that rest, as he had said. It's the faith that causes us to enter into the rest. When we trusted Christ as our Savior, when we believed that he was God, that he died for our sins and rose again, then we experienced rest, knowing that our our sins are, are forgiven. So what is it that you're facing tonight? What is it that causes you to have a lack of peace in your life? Examine that question. I need to examine that question. Am I trusting God? Am I trusting his promises? Am I relying upon him? And as I trust him, then the rest will follow and it will come into place. In verse 5, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. The author of Hebrews is going to quote Psalms 95 several times. Good psalm to go back and read. It's the parallel text. Quoting Psalms 95 here says, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That generation that died in the wilderness. But what's interesting at the end of verse 3, it says, Although the works were finished from the foundations of the world, God had already determined to defeat the Canaanites that dwelled in the promised land. They saw giants. God already saw a victory that was completed from the foundations of the world. God had told Abraham some 400 years prior that his descendants would have this section of land. In verse 5, verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest." So we have the illustration of the rest in the promised land, and then we have the illustration of rest on the seventh day at creation. So God created all things in six days, spoke things into existence, and then the seventh day he rested. Why did he rest? Showing that he himself is rest. He doesn't need rest. He himself is sufficiency of rest. He's communicating to us in the Sabbath day. As we study the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we know that the the Sabbath was a shadow of the rest that was provided in Jesus Christ. That the work was finished in Jesus Christ. What the author of Hebrews is really trying to get to this group of believers is remember their temptation was to go back under the law. To trust in their own works instead of to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Say, I want you to remain in faith in the gospel and entering into the rest that Jesus has provided. If it's a works-based salvation or a works-based relationship with God, there's no rest. How do you know when you've done enough, right? And so the Sabbath points to the rest that's provided in Jesus Christ. So if you ever feel guilty about resting, our culture doesn't value rest We have it as a badge of honor to say, oh, I'm busy. How you doing? Oh, I'm so busy, right? Because if I'm not busy, then I'm not living a worthwhile life, right? Imagine if someone asked you how you're doing, and you're like, oh, I'm resting. Like, you loser, you're resting? (laughs) What if you said, you know, I'm kind of bored. I'm, I'm resting today. What? You're bored? Man. You must not love God. Because if you loved God, you, you'd be busy. Because that's the mark of a, of a fruit, fruitful life. God rested. So 
if we're walking in a godly life, we're going to rest. We're going to be in that place where we're resting in salvation, but we're also resting practically. We're saying, I'm going I'm to take a day to unwind and worship and put things into perspective. Not out of legalism, not out of trying to earn or deserve salvation, but out of health. Amen? So he rested on the seventh day. But then, again, we find in verse 5, this generation did not enter into rest. So, so God's providing rest, but they're not entering into it. In verse 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience. Again, he designated a certain day saying in David, quoting Psalms 95, today, after such a long time, as it's been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So unbelief leads to a hard heart. If I walk in unbelief long enough about who God is and what his promises are, that's going to lead to a hard heart. A heart that says, I don't trust God. I don't believe that God can defeat the giants. And that's what we find in this generation. They had a disobedient lifestyle with a hard heart that was all based upon unbelief. So unbelief's a big deal. Making sure that our heart is in that place of, of trust. This is an interesting verse in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward spoken of another day. So if Joshua was the fulfillment of all the rest that God had provided, there wouldn't be a future promise of rest. So as great as Joshua was, there's a greater than Joshua who's going to bring us into a greater rest. Remember, the author of Hebrews likes to teach through contrast. We talked about how do you know if you've had a good burger? Because you've had a bad burger, right? How do you know if you've had a good cup of coffee? Because you've had a bad cup of coffee. So he's contrasting and he's saying, look, this was the rest in the Old Testament, the, the promised land, the Sabbath day. Joshua led us to the promised land, but Jesus is greater than Joshua and is providing a greater level of rest. He continues to hammer his point in verse 9. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. This is a rest that's rooted in grace, that's rooted in the gospel, to so know that I'm saved by the finished work of Christ that applies to every situation that we're going through. God hears my finances, I trust you. God hears what's going on in my family, in these relationships that are important to me, in the life of my children, I trust you. Here's what's going on in my health, I trust you. Here's what's going on in what I perceive in the way that you are or are not using my life, I trust you. And then in trusting, we enter into the rest. Verse 10, For he who enters into his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So God worked for six days, and the seventh day, he ceased from his work because he's resting. So for us to enter into rest, we have to cease from our works. We have to cease trying to please God through our devotional time, through our tithe, through our service. We step back and we go, you know what? I know that God is pleased with me based on the blood of Jesus. So I get to respond and worship. I get to worship by being in the word. I get to worship through service. But I'm at a place of peace and I'm at a place of rest because I've 
stopped working. I'm stopped trying to earn or deserve God's favor. I hope you enjoy that inside of your marriage. I hope your, your marriage is not built upon merit, where if I do these things, my spouse loves me. But if I don't do these things, I don't know. I don't know if my spouse is going to love me. Like if I have a bad day today, it might be all over. I hope that's not the kind of marriage that, that you're living in. I, I hope you're living in an environment of grace where then you can respond out of that and love and serve one another. And it's definitely how the Lord wants it to be. Amen? It's a powerful verse. If we've entered into rest, then we cease from our work just as God has ceased from his. In verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So be diligent to enter into rest. Seems like an opposite statement, right? How, how do I be diligent to make sure that I enter into rest? To be monitoring faith, to be monitoring, am I trusting the Lord? And then who we're warned to not be like is like this generation in the wilderness that didn't believe that God was, was bigger than the challenges. This is often where we live, don't we? There's some giant in our life. We can get so fixed upon the giant that we fail to see who God is. We fail to see his promises and his character. It, it happens to all of us. The rest in salvation, rest in the gospel, not our own works, and rest knowing that he has the situation that we're going through. As I studied the scripture, a couple of my favorites are Joshua and Caleb. Because you have the multitude of Israel, and they saw the challenges. They saw the giants. But Joshua and Caleb saw God and saw opportunity, and they said God's bigger than the giants. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could see the giants fall in our lives through faith? Instead of cowering in unbelief, going that way of what the crowds say and what logic says, say, first and foremost, I'm looking to you, God, and you're able to do the impossible, and I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. So you might be saying, Eric, this sounds good. I get the concept. I enter into rest through faith, but I'm still struggling with my faith, right? Sometimes in those deep valleys, it's, it's really hard to come up the other side. What are some helpful hints as we wrestle with doubt? Well, the first is, remember the cross. Remember the cross. God gave his son for us, and it tells us in Romans 8, if he's freely given us his son, how will he not with him give us all good things? God, I know you love me. You gave your son for me. I don't know what's going on in this situation. I don't like this situation. It makes me angry, disappointed, confused, fill in the blank, but I know you're good because you've proved it upon the cross. We hold on to the cross, agreed? And then as we're wrestling in unbelief, because we all will at times, don't be content to stay there. Look at the cross, but then also get in the word like nobody's business, because God's promise is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Read the word, listen to the word, spend time in the word, the good old-fashioned word of God. It's great to hear teachings and listen to podcasts, but sometimes we just need to get back to the Word. We need to log a lot of time in the Word. Get an app where the Bible's going to be read to you, and in, instead of listening to the news, listen to the Word of God. Say, I'm going to drive back and forth to work listening to the Word of God because I'm struggling in, in my faith. You go to work out, listen to the Word of God. You know, 
I'm going to bed at night. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to the word of God. And you'll watch your, your faith will be built up. Hold on to the cross, listen to the word, and then be honest, be honest with God. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't want to be in this place of wandering. I don't want to be double-minded. James tells us that we can be double-minded. Sometimes in trial, we ask God for wisdom. God answers, and we say, no, that wasn't the answer I was looking for. And we question his answer. We're double-minded, and then we're tossed to and fro. I don't believe that we have to stay in a place of unbelief. It's real. We're, we're all there at, at many points in our lives, but we can choose to meditate upon the cross. We can choose to be in the word. We can choose to cry out to God in honest prayer. The Psalms are so encouraging because a lot of the Psalms, they begin just honest, like a vomit fest, like, I'm having a terrible day. These guys are miserable. God, would you just bust their teeth out? And I mean, all this stuff's right there in the Psalms, right? But then somewhere in the Psalms, the psalmist gets his eye off the situation and everything that's making him feel like vomit and focuses on the Lord and gives that difficulty to God and then ends rejoicing in God's character and our perspective changes. So enter into his rest and then enter into surgery, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful. Living and powerful. God's word's alive it's not a dead ancient book. You guys know this. You're here on Wednesday night in May. It's a busy month. There's a lot going on. And you're here. Why? Because you believe that the word of God is powerful. You know that it, it's powerful. You've experienced that it's powerful. It's living. So as you approach the word of God, don't approach it as a dead book. And we approach it with the expectation that God, you're going to speak. God, you're going to reveal your character. God, you're going to bring encouragement. You're going to bring correction. It's living and it's powerful. Isaiah 55 says that God's word will not return void. And it'll accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. You don't know what to do? Be in the word. You know what to do? Be in the word. Because it's going to bring forth fruit. It's going to bring forth power in your life. God's word is likened unto a hammer. If you've ever gotten a sledgehammer and had to break up concrete or bust up a rock, that hammer's powerful. You just, you just keep swinging. And eventually, the hammer wins out and breaks up that concrete. And so much more so with the word of God. The word of God is powerful. Charles Spurgeon says that the word of God is like a lion. All you have to do is let it out of its cage. You don't have to defend it. Let it out of its cage. Let God's word do its work in your life. Maybe you've believed this lie that you can't understand God's word. You can. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's your teacher. Get into God's word and allow God to speak to you. Allow the word of God to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Don't believe the lie that the word of God is not powerful. Next thing about the word, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So God's word is living, it's powerful, but it's also sharp and exacting. It, it's sharper than a two-edged sword that can bring division between soul and spirit. There's three illustrations here where it's very hard to know where one begins 
and the other ends. I mean, where does the soul end and the spirit begin? It's impossible for us to know. The soul has been defined as the emotional part of our being, our mind and our thoughts. Our spirit is our spiritual part of our being. So so where do those two divide? Well, God's word comes in is able to divide even between soul and spirit. Joints and marrow, especially in this ancient world, how would they divide between joints and marrow, between the bones and, and the marrow? The marrow is the flexible tissue in the interior of the bones. Red blood cells are produced by cores of bone marrow in the long bones. On average, bone marrow consists 4% of the total body mass of humans. Like you ever wanted to know that, right? So as you're looking at a bone, how could you tell what what the, the marrow is? But God's word is able to get in and divide even between bone and marrow. The next is very similar, discerning between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The thought is what we think, obviously. The intent of the heart is what we plan to do. It's the motivation of the heart. It's what we've decided. And God's word is able to get in there and go, Now, obviously, verse 12 is a very famous verse. And you could do a great topical message on just verse 12. I kind of want to, you know? How does it fit into Hebrews 3 and 4? How does it fit into entering into rest? How does it fit into unbelief and not hardening our heart? The word of God is what penetrates our hearts to root out unbelief so that we can enter into God's rest. That's what God's word's going for, is exposing in me, okay, Eric, you don't believe me in this area. You don't trust me in this area. You don't trust this about my character. This is who I say I am. This is the promise of of salvation. And the word of God is exposing that and leading me into deeper relationship and trust with God. So that's why verse 12 is there. First 11 verses, enter into rest. How do we get there? Through the word of God. Enter into his surgery room. That's point number two. Get Get into his surgery room. And I don't know, only God can do this. It hurts so bad, but it feels so good. There's been times that we've all had where we're reading the word of God and the spirit speaks through the word and it hurts to the very core of our being. God is revealing the reality of who we are. He's revealing the intents of the heart the soul and the spirit, we go, really, God, that's me? God's like, yeah, Eric, that's you. That's exactly you. And I love you. And I want to discipline you. I want to train you and I want to change you. But you got to look at this in your life. And only the word of God can do that. And that's the power of God's word. We always need to be in his surgery room. My life, our lives, our hearts are dangerously wicked apart from a relationship with Christ and the power of his word. Amen? So it would be nice if this sinful flesh went away, but we're going to have this sinful flesh until we go home to be with the Lord. 
So we daily, regularly want to be in God's word to let God's word do its exacting work. Wednesday night Bible study, I'm going to be there. Sunday morning, I'm going to be there. My own devotional time, I'm going to be there because I need the word of God to cut deep into my heart and my life. But we have to enter in, right? We have to enter in, and that's where that faith comes in. God, I'm trusting your word, and I'm allowing your work in my life. To me, this is why I think it's like a surgery, because you have to surrender to it. They have long, lengthy waivers to get an x-ray, just to get an x-ray, let alone to, to get a surgery. They do things like, you know, they're going to mark your right arm because they're supposed to do the surgery on the right arm. But if they accidentally do the surgery on the left arm, hey, you signed the waiver, right? You're, you're taking a risk, but, but you willfully put yourself in that surgery room. You willfully decide to go underneath that anesthesia. And God could take his word, and he could smack us with it and say, okay, here you go. You're, I'm going to force my word upon you. But he doesn't work that way, does he? He says, you've got to enter into my surgery room. You, you've got to trust me enough that I love you enough, that I'm caring enough, that I've got your best interest in mind, that I'm going to get that unbelief. I'm going to soften I'm going to soften your heart. I'm going to do a work through the power of my word. The flow of this is so comforting. Verse 13 shows us the knowledge that God has of us, and then we're encouraged of Christ being our high priest. And there's no creature, verse 13, hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We can fool one another, we can fool ourselves, but we can't fool God. There's no hiding before God. We're naked before him. He sees it all. He, he knows it all about us. And then we have to give account to him. We're accountable to him. As believers, we're accountable to him. Not for salvation, but for the life that we live. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment or the judgment for, for believers. He's going to examine our lives, and some things are going to pass as precious gems to be laid at the feet of Jesus, and others are going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble, but I'm accountable to God. I have to give account, of, account to him. We need to be reminded sometimes you're only going to give account for your own life. That, that's what you're accountable for. But at some point, I'm going to have to answer to him. I, I must give an account to him. And what I hope that you see as we go into verse 14 and 15 is verse 13 sounds really scary, doesn't it? Like God sees. You can't hide. Like he's the grim reaper and he's coming to get you, right? But it's the loving heart of a father with unconditional love for us where he sent his son to die for us where he sees all and we're able to approach him in that grace and forgiveness, he's not going to let us stay in that place. How do you hear God's voice when Adam and Eve sinned? Jesus came to, the Father comes to hang out with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And he asks this question, where are you? What's the tone of God's voice? Where are you? You really blew it this time. 
Time to come get your three spanks, right? Where are you? Or is it the loving heart of a father? Where are you? Where are you? Really, Adam? Fig leaves? You know? You just now realized you're naked, right? Where are you, bro? Come on. Come back to fellowship with me. And that's the heart of God that we see in these next few verses. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Number three, enter his throne room. Enter his throne room. We see Jesus, and he is the high priest that has made sacrifice for our sin. He himself has become the sacrifice. He's the high priest and the sacrifice. And he passed through the heavens. He died, was buried, rose again, ascended to be with the Father. And here's the culmination of the text. Hold fast to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. Delight and enjoy Jesus. He's your rest. He's the one who's doing surgery on your heart. He's the one who sees all things. So so hold on to him. Church, you're holding on to something tonight. We're holding on to ourselves. We're holding on to this world. We're holding on to a church. We're holding on to a religious system. But we need to be holding on to Jesus. That's what we hold on to. He's our cornerstone. He's the vine. He's our life. He's everything. And we're encouraged. Hold fast to him. In verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So as we hold fast to Jesus, we see that he can sympathize with our weakness. Suffer alongside with. He understands our weakness. He was tempted in all ways like we are yet without sin. There's so many things that we can't sympathize with in life. For children that are living in poverty, for the kids that live in the dump in Managua, Nicaragua, and so many other parts of this world, we can't sympathize with them. We don't know what it's like to not have food, to live in that level of poverty, even if we've struggled with moments of going without food here in the United States. We we can't grasp it. We'd like to think that we can, but we're living in a different reality. We're living in, in a different world. And see, Jesus can honestly say, I sympathize with your weakness because he became human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He understands he came and lived in our dump without becoming sin, without ever compromising. He knows. He he walked these streets. He was tempted. He suffered. He went through the heartbreak that, that we go through. And because of that, he can sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Now, this is kind of theologically controversial, and I want you to think through it in in some, some fashion. As there would be some who believe and teach that sin never looked good to Jesus, because he's God. So even though he was in human flesh, and he was walking this, this earth, Sin never looked good. Now, I don't believe that because of this verse. Because it says 
he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. Now, this is mind-blowing, but this is how I think. In order for a temptation to be a temptation, it has to be a temptation. All right? So the only way that the Scripture could say that Christ was tempted as we are, in his humanness, it had to look good. It had to pull on his humanity to say, why don't you do this? Jesus understands that. And he understands what we're going through as well. And that's why he can sympathize with our weakness. But it's very important. Don't compromise the other point. He never gave in to the sin. He never gave in to the sin. But he understands it. It also teaches us that the sin is not the temptation. The sin is not the temptation. Because if the sin was the temptation, then Christ would have been guilty. So you're not guilty if you're tempted. You're guilty if you give in to the temptation. Does that make sense? So then this leads us to the home run verse, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember, God sees all. And our tendency is if, well, God sees all, I can't approach him. My, my sinfulness, I'm so ashamed of my sinfulness, I couldn't approach him. And here God is saying, look, I see all. I, I see where you're at. I see the reality of who you are. And I, I paid the price. I want you now to come into my throne room. And we're to come boldly, boldly into the throne room of God. To understand that because of what Christ has done, we have an open invitation to his throne room. It's important to get a little bit of understanding in this in the Old Testament. Because we find in the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies, which represented God's presence. It wasn't the fullness of God's presence, but it what God chose to say, this is where my presence is going to dwell. This is where my holiness is going to dwell. One man, one day a year, could go into the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That's how sacred the presence of God is. They would tie a rope to the high priest in case God decided to kill him while he was in there. Then they could pull him out, and no one would have to risk their lives to go in to fetch them. I mean, God's presence is something that is very valued and sacred, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil kept everybody outside of God's presence. Jesus is declaring, my flesh was torn, was ripped, so that the veil could be torn, and I'm welcoming you into my, my presence. So we come boldly, not because of who we are, but because of the blood of Jesus. It's even okay to approach God and say, God, I know that I don't deserve to be here on my own merit, but I know that I'm welcome because of the blood of Jesus. Thank you for welcoming me into your throne room. And we come with confidence into the throne of grace. And aren't you so glad that that's how God describes his throne of grace? He's just waiting to pour out undeserved, unmerited favor upon our lives, that gift that is apart from us. He's saying, come to my throne of grace and obtain mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And find grace is that, that gift to help in time of need. So God has help. He has grace and mercy for what we're in need of. 
And the context of this is temptation, isn't it? Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are. God sees all. Are you being tempted tonight? How do you deal with temptation? You go to Jesus. You go to his very throne room and say, God, would you give me grace? Would you give me help in in time of need? If he wants to provide help for temptation, do you think he wants to provide help for situations in our lives? I mean, what is it? Is there a challenge in marriage? Is there a challenge with kids? Is there a challenge in singleness? Challenge at work? You're like, man, challenge is just multiplied in my life. The list's too long. I don't want to talk about it. It's depressing, right? God says, come on in. Come on in. I want to give you grace. I want to give you help. I want to give you, give you wisdom. And you know what? I think God enjoys spending time with his kids, and you can come to the throne room even when you don't have problems. You say, hey, I just want to spend some time here. Father, I just want to be with you. Today was a really good day, and I want to thank you for it. I just want to thank you for, for who you are. What is one of the things that we see in the life of Jesus? He was constantly getting away to be alone with the Father. What was that all about, right? He's hanging out at the throne room. He was enjoying relationship with his Father. He was entering in. And Jesus told us, I'm bringing you into fellowship with the Father. So enter in, enter in. Enter into what? Enter into his rest. Life's not easy. There's promise of difficulty and trial, but to say, God, I want to trust you and enter in to rest. If you're saying, man, I'm really struggling with my faith right now, get in the word. Get in the word. Focus on the cross. Be honest with God. God, help my unbelief. Enter into his rest. We don't want to wander the wilderness through unbelief. And then the second thing, is enter into the surgery room right here. God's word's living, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Let God's word do its work. Say, God, I'm here. I'm submitting to your word. I want to understand it from an academic perspective, but more so I want to understand you, and I want you to have open permission to do surgery on my life. Bible study's going to change. It's going to get a lot more real, isn't it? It's going to hurt, but it's going to be so worthwhile. I would take the hands of Jesus as my physician over anybody else. He's going to leave the good stuff, cut out the bad, and then finally to enter into his throne room. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to end with verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are rest, that you invite us into rest. We hear your voice tonight. We want to come to you. 
in the areas of your life where you're heavy laden and you're burdened, just, just come to Jesus. Give him that burden. Cast that care upon him. Right now, just press in whatever it is. Talk it over with him. We trust him. Jesus, we trust you. Take his yoke. Let him carry the burden. Renew that commitment to follow him. Let him lead. Let him be God in your life. Let him take you to green pastures and still waters and let him restore your soul. Jesus, we ask by your grace that you would give us rest, rest for our souls. As we take communion tonight, we don't want it to be an empty tradition. We know your death, your resurrection is what provides rest in our lives for salvation, for situation, for challenges that we're going through. Jesus, you are the bread of life that was broken for us. We draw near to you. Jesus, we worship you. We invite you to do surgery in our lives. As much as we try to hide, Father, you know the ugliness of our, of our hearts. Even now, God, would you bring word, your word to, to our hearts to, to cut away that, that sin and the hardness of heart. We want to abide in your throne room. We come right now to you, Jesus, and just abide in your throne room. Thank you for the open access to be close to you. Thank you that you understand and sympathize with our weakness.